welcome to Green and Gold, the cannabis podcast that gets into all things weed. I'm Haley Fox, and on this week's episode, we're talking about weed use during pregnancy. There is, in fact, so much to talk about on this topic that we are doing a pregnancy and pot series over the next two weeks. First up this week, we have Emily Berger in studio. She's a nonprofit attorney in Los Angeles who represents the very women who end up battling for custody of their children, often because of drug use and often because that drug is cannabis. Next week, we'll talk to an OBGYN about the science of how cannabis does and doesn't impact a pregnancy and a baby. But before all that, we're going to get into why we're talking about this issue now. This issue is really a big deal right now for a couple of reasons. Recreational weed is now legal in California and many other Western states, and medical marijuana is legal in more than half the states in the country. So cannabis is more accessible than ever. It's also becoming more socially acceptable than ever. And a lot of the reasons people take it in everyday life to help calm anxiety, address chronic pain, or quiet nausea— are the same reasons pregnant ladies seem to be using it more often now than before. This comes from anecdotal evidence, but also from a few studies. According to a survey published last year in the Journal of the American Medical Association, weed is now the most commonly used illicit drug during pregnancy. In fact, the study says that from 2009 to 2016, prenatal marijuana use increased from 4.2% to 7.1%. We're going to circle back to this term illicit drug that they use to describe cannabis. We're going to let it go for now, but we will come back to it in a future episode because it's a big crux of why marijuana use during pregnancy um, is looked at under such a microscope. So in addition to this data and the wide anecdotal evidence of its use being on the rise, marijuana has created a very dangerous legal situation for pregnant moms. That's because while state law may okay the drug's use in adults, its use while pregnant is still enough in many states to trigger child services, meaning women who use cannabis, either when pregnant or when having kids, could potentially lose custody of their kids over it, or at the very least be subject to intense scrutiny, in-home visits, required drug treatment, and a long list of other punishments, basically. So I dove into all this in a story I wrote for Rolling Stone that came out in November, and we'll have a link to it for you in the show notes. There are way too many nuances to get into all of them on this topic. But what you should know is that, one, policies on which women get drug tested during labor and who gets reported to authorities as a result changes dramatically state to state and even hospital to hospital. Two, the jury's still out, scientifically speaking, on what weed does or doesn't do to a fetus. Some studies have shown that THC can, in fact, enter the baby's bloodstream and have an impact on brain development, but others have shown that it doesn't conclusively do anything to the baby. And in general, many agree it's way less harmful than alcohol consumption or nicotine consumption during pregnancy. And three, this whole issue of 
cannabis use in pregnancy mm-hmm. is impacting real women in a real way. And these women are more often than not minority individuals on some type of publicly subsidized health care. Okay, so let's get into our interview with Emily Berger. She's a supervising attorney with the Los Angeles Dependency Lawyers, and she gives us a look at how, post-legalization, there seems to be an increase in child welfare cases related to cannabis use. And she tells us why a lot of these cases are clogging up the system unnecessarily. So dependency court is for the protection of children, primarily regarding abuse or neglect. And most of the cases have to do with substance abuse issues or domestic violence. That's the great majority of the cases we have. There is some crossover with family law, some crossover with criminal law, um, and of course, always some crossover with immigration as well. But the purpose of our court, it's meant to be rehabilitative. It's meant to encourage stronger families. That doesn't always happen, but that's the purpose of it. It's not meant to be punitive like the criminal justice system. Can you tell me a little bit about um, how much of these cases involve cannabis or marijuana and kind of if you've seen any changes in that workload since it's become more accessible? Sure. So I started working at Los Angeles Dependency Lawyers nine years ago. And at that time, marijuana was still very prevalent in the system. It was often bootstrapped in. So perhaps a call would come in because of a domestic violence altercation or because of something else. And then while they were investigating, the social workers would ask the parent to test. And a majority of the time, they would end up testing positive for marijuana. They would then bootstrap that in and end up, in addition to the domestic violence allegation, of course, it would say, and mother has a problem with marijuana. Um, I would say that now, with the legalization of marijuana, I would argue that we actually have more marijuana cases. And the reason for that, I believe, is that people have a false sense of security now, that they can safely and legally use marijuana and also parent Um, And unfortunately, DCFS and the judicial system has not quite caught up there. There is a real split in how the cases are being handled. A lot of our judges understand that testing positive for marijuana does not mean that this case needs to be in dependency court. Or they understand that, you know what, this case is about domestic violence. It is not about the low level of marijuana that the mother tested positive for. But a lot of our judges see it the way DCFS sees it. And they will order the parent to cease all marijuana use. They'll order them to continue drug testing. If their marijuana levels spike um, or do not drop off, then they'll order them into a full substance abuse program. And the parent may or may not have custody of their child at that point. And so it becomes really burdensome. And something that you and I have talked about in the past as well is that It is not about whether a drug is legal or illegal. It's about how that use affects your parenting skills. And so a mere positive test for marijuana should not at all trigger any concerns by DCFS. They need to be looking at the child. um, And a, a test is not going to tell you how that child is being cared for. 
so for example, California case law is really clear that mere use of a substance is not enough to trigger a dependency case. There has to be something more. And so I, for example, was able a few years ago to take a case to trial that involved methamphetamine use. It was appealed and it is a published decision. I made California case law, Amazing. which indicated, <laughs> thank you, Congratulations. which indicated that a parent can use methamphetamine and still parent their child effectively. That if they're going out, they're using their drug outside of the home, there's no drugs, no paraphernalia in the home, and the child is otherwise well cared for, that is 100% appropriate. And so that applies to methamphetamine use, which as we know is illegal, um, and other drugs as well. And then with marijuana, parents need to understand that it is the way in which they are using marijuana um, that is going to be called into question. So if they are using and a DCFS social worker is called, they need to be able to say, I use outside of the home. I am not under the influence when I am caring for my child. I'm not driving when I'm under the influence. I am storing my marijuana in a safety locked box. My child cannot access this marijuana. For example, um, we did recently have a case where a child unfortunately did access an edible. And because these edibles often look like candies, they did ingest marijuana. That is a perfect example of how marijuana use did place a child in danger. So I'm curious um, in what you've seen um, besides, you know, in parents, I guess, post labor, how many of your cases have dealt with its use during pregnancy and kind of how do those cases come about? How do those women actually get in trouble then for using it? Sure. So first of all, drug testing in hospitals is not done across the board. It is primarily targeted to poor women, primarily women of color, primarily women who are on Medi-Cal or who are uninsured. Those women are policed more by our government and they get tested um, sometimes without their knowledge and if they test positive for marijuana, that is going to be a red flag. Or if the baby tests positive. Now, in New Jersey, there was a case in the last few years that stood for the premise that a child born positive for drugs, I believe in that case it was cocaine, that that was not in and of itself proof of child abuse or neglect because the child was born healthy. And that is where California needs to get um, we are still being put in a position to defend these petitions when a child is born of healthy weight, full term, high APGAR scores, they're being released in a timely manner, they have no other medical, they have no medical conditions or problems at all. Mm -hmm. And yet because they tested positive, DCFS and the hospitals are treating them as if um, they've been abused or neglected by their mother. And what we know is that the only documented syndrome for prenatal use is fetal alcohol syndrome. Mm -hmm. That is a documented medical syndrome that is going to have long-term lasting effects on a person when they are exposed to alcohol um, in the womb. But we do not have those studies for marijuana and even for other drugs. We need to get the courts to act. There are five different firms within Los Angeles Dependency Lawyers, but Los Angeles Dependency Lawyers is 
continuing to fight these cases, and we are hoping that the courts are going to start to respond in the same way that they've responded to the use of marijuana, and they have um, stepped in and said, a parent can use marijuana, a parent can use harder drugs and still be an appropriate parent. We are waiting for that case in California. And I think that Los Angeles Dependency Lawyers has a very high chance of being the entity to get that case law made. When we first started this conversation and you mentioned kind of the threshold for abuse or neglect, you had said that California law does say that just simple use of a drug, right, doesn't constitute that. But it sounds like the judges aren't really ruling in that way. Like, is that where this disconnect is? There is a disconnect because you're essentially practicing medicine from the bench. These are lawyers and judges who are arguing these cases and deciding these cases, and they're not doctors. And there is not scientific evidence or expert testimony by a doctor being proffered in many of these cases. They, just like in the Um, In the 80s, when there was the quote-unquote crack baby epidemic, what we're seeing now, there is no such thing as a crack baby. These children that were exposed do not, did not have long-term lasting impacts, but there was this um, stigmatization of the communities around which that were using crack Mm -hmm. cocaine. And it was a stigmatization of these children in the foster care system as well. And the same thing is happening with the marijuana use. We do not have good medical evidence that these children are being harmed. Now, I've mentioned if a, if a child accesses some marijuana and ingests it, that's a problem. Or if someone is using marijuana to such an extent that they're sitting using marijuana, playing video games all day long, and they're not taking their child to the doctor or to school or they're not feeding their child. That's a perfect example of how, even though it's just marijuana, they're not taking care of their kid. Um, But we don't see that very often. And yet, so much of the time with these drug cases, it just comes down to a call by the judge. And it really does depend on what individual judge you see at juvenile court um, in Los Angeles County. We have judges that would dismiss one marijuana petition, but if you happen to wind up in a different department, you could not only have the case sustained, you could have your children removed from you. I also had told you previously about a case I had a few years ago where I represented a mother and the case had been called in because the neighbors had smelled marijuana coming out of her door. Mm -hmm. She had nine-month-old twin boys the department responded. They came in. They talked about how, yes, there was this strong smell of marijuana. And then, of course, they talked about the dirty home and it was a mess. And then, of course, the mother volunteered that she had been diagnosed with depression and anxiety in the past um, and that she was using the marijuana to address her mental health issues. So next thing you know, the children have been removed And there's an allegation of a dirty home. There's an allegation that she and her partner have substance abuse problems and that she and her partner have mental health problems. 
So I was the trial attorney. I took the case to trial right away. I asked for what we what we call a no time waiver trial to get a trial as soon as possible because I believed really strongly that these babies needed to be back in the care of their parents. Mm-hmm. It was such a clear case to me. And I even though it was four years ago, I remember saying on the record to my judge, Your Honor, we know what abused and neglected children look like. And these children are not abused or neglected. Mm -hmm. They were healthy, happy, chubby babies. They were up to date on all their immunizations. The doctors they had seen had had no concerns. They were bonded to their parents. They were exhibiting all of the signs of responding positively to their parents. So the parents both cooperated with drug testing for the department and the parents tested with extraordinarily high levels for marijuana. And they had only, it was only for marijuana and judges and social workers will often look at those levels and determine, well, these numbers are sky high. These people must have been so out of their minds, but we don't know that. First of all, these were heavier people and And as we know, marijuana is metabolized differently with different bodies. Mm -hmm. Additionally, when you do use every day, you respond differently. And so somebody who tests very high may actually be much less under the influence because they've become more accustomed to it. Um, These were people who were using marijuana to address some mental health conditions that they had, but those mental health conditions were not impacting their ability to parent at all. They were very coherent. They knew where they were. They did not have delusions or any hallucinations. Mm -hmm. It was so clear to me that these children needed to go home. Um, And I was shocked when the judge not only sustained the allegations, but continued to place the children in foster care. So we appealed the case right away. And... I don't know if your listeners know this, but the appellate process takes a tremendously long time. And in fact, the process actually occurs faster in dependency cases. And even then, these children, they didn't go home for nine months. So they were in, uh, I guess, temporary custody of the county for those? Yes. They were placed in L.A. County foster care and... My heart broke when I read the social workers' notes in the case because the social workers had placed these twin boys with a young foster family looking to adopt, and they had actually miscarried twins about six months prior. So, I mean, it just sets everybody up for heartbreak Mm -hmm. because I can only imagine what those well-meaning foster parents felt when the children did reunify, and it set them up for failure in a way that was so unnecessary because those children should have never been removed. So it was just heartbreak all around and the parents did eventually reunify. They first reunified through the court system. So what that means is while the appeal is pending, what we always have to tell our clients is this takes a really long time. It can take a year or more. Um, So while and we don't know if we're going to win. So while that appeal is pending, we tell all of our clients, you have to be complying with this case plan. So we're essentially telling them that they have no control over their lives. The government has interfered. The government has come in and said, this is a problem. Um, My client needed to get onto more Western medication. And 
had to comply with a number of different programs, continue to test. She and her partner eventually tested negative for all unprescribed illicit substances. Mm -hmm. And... Ultimately, the Department of Children and Family Services did agree that these children should go home after they made this family sort of go through the ringer. Then we got the appellate court decision coming down saying this case should have never even been here. Mm -hmm. And then think of all, you know, I just think about the dependency system in Los Angeles. We have overburdened social workers. We have children who are falling through the cracks and then we have our resources being wasted on these marijuana cases where they just shouldn't be. I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about um, your own situation with asking to consent to a drug test and kind of this issue of consent in general, because I know a lot of us think about consent in the terms of medical conditions, um, you know, when you go see the doctor and at the hospital as something you're required to give. Informed consent is kind of the bar Mm -hmm. for a lot of these procedures, but doesn't seem to be the case for drug testing. So I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about that. So I gave birth to my daughter almost five years ago at Kaiser. And while I was in the middle of active labor, the nurse asked if I consented to a drug test. And I said, absolutely not. Mm -hmm. And she was surprised. And I think my husband, who is not, does not work in the dependency system, he was surprised as well, even though he knows the kind of work I do, because doctors always expect us to comply Mm -hmm. and to say yes and do whatever they recommend. I did not consent and it made me wonder how many of my clients are being asked if they consent to a drug test. Now, I don't think many are. I think that it is an expectation that when you have Medi-Cal that you are giving up your right to consent to certain things. I think that my clients have so many interventions with different governmental agencies anything from getting welfare benefits, perhaps they're getting SSI, Medi-Cal. They're used to having social workers kind of in and out of their lives in different capacities. And many of my clients have been so marginalized that they don't feel much agency in saying no. Think of all of the times when a police pulls someone over and says, can I search your car? How many times do people actually say, no, I don't give you my consent? Yeah, that's a great comparison. And it's exactly those marginalized communities that feel like they have to say yes to any authority figure because they know what can happen if you say no. We're very aware of what happens when people don't comply with police officers. And I feel like there is an analogy to be made with when people don't comply with the medical establishment because they are mandated reporters. And if they think somebody is acting erratic, if they think someone is acting suspect, if someone's not listening to medical advice, then they can go ahead and call DCFS. Pregnancy is a very specific and uniquely vulnerable time that I could see why even in any medical circumstance, you would feel compelled to say yes. But yeah, especially, you know, um, we had spoken with a doctor earlier about this, how women don't want to do anything that will harm themselves or the baby. And so they feel like compelled to go along with a lot of the stuff that comes up. Absolutely. And then another circumstance that I think happens a lot that should not be encouraged 
is if women know they are going to be testing positive, they're not seeking prenatal care, or they're not going to their doctor regularly, they're not being upfront with different situations, and we need to be encouraging women to seek medical interventions that are going to help them. My biggest concern in all of this is the fact that there is no uniformity. We don't have any straightforward law that states if you test positive, that is not an automatic reason to file a dependency petition. And there are times when a a woman is going to test positive for marijuana and her doctor and her nurse are going to see Those individuals are going to see, you know what, she's appropriate, she's bonding, she's acting appropriate, she has a support system in place, and this child is 100% healthy, and they're not going to call, and DCFS is never going to know about that person. And what is that person going to look like? Most likely, that person is going to be a middle-class woman who is most likely white, has her white skin privilege, and there's an assumption that she's going to be an appropriate mother. Mm Mm-hmm. And then across town, there's going to be a woman who's going to test positive and she's not going to look like that. She's not going to have the same resources. Perhaps her prenatal care was a little spotty because of the stressors in her life. And her nurse or her doctor is going to say, even though her child is healthy, we're concerned. We have concerns. Mm -hmm. And so then they go ahead and they call DCFS and the social workers come out. And then once the social workers come out... If there's a really great social worker who really can see that this woman's appropriate and she's willing to cooperate and comply mm-hmm. and she'll let her baby she'll let her baby go home with her and she'll say, "Well, I think with a safety plan in place, we can keep this baby at home." And we'll just do a voluntary contract with this family and for 6 months this woman is going to voluntarily drug test, and go to parenting classes. And that's like the best case scenario once they get involved, right? It really is. I mean, the best case scenario is for the department to say, there's no problem, we're closing the referral. Gotcha. But the uh, the next best option <laughs> is for them to say, we can voluntarily work with these people, we don't need a court case, and the baby stays at home. Mm-hmm. And then another option with a different social worker, it's all just so dependent on the eyes and the judgments of the people who you just happen to get that day. And so another woman gets a social worker who's a little more jaded, has seen perhaps something terrible the day before, and she says, I'm filing the case. I will still let the baby stay with you, but you have to go into an inpatient program right now. And so that's the safety plan. And then I get involved or someone from from Los Angeles dependency lawyers gets appointed to represent this woman because now now there's a court case. Mm -hmm. And we will most likely be fighting that case, especially if it's the woman's very first time in the system. It's her first child. We'll be arguing that there really isn't a nexus here between uh, any of the any use that she engaged in while pregnant and harm to her child. Mm -hmm. And then it depends on the judge. I mean, it's just like at every point. And then the worst case scenario is when you have someone coming in and they're looking at all the different factors and perhaps in addition to the marijuana, there's something else or perhaps 
this person was in the foster care system herself and then they use that against them and they say well they don't have any familial support and all these other things they're concerned about the bonding maybe they go out to the woman's home and they think it's not appropriate or perhaps she couldn't play, pay her light bill that week and the lights are turned off and then they end up asking for the baby to be detained mm-hmm. and it's those critical first weeks and months of bonding that that baby and that mother are deprived of and you just can't get that back I mean even if you are able to win on an appellate level you're losing that valuable time with your child. Well, and I think it's interesting because um, the idea of it doesn't even really matter what triggers them because once you're under a microscope, everybody looks bad. Like Exactly. That's Yes, I have said that myself. Mother of the year will still find out, you know, that she's doing something wrong so it I mean seems I'm like... being recorded so I'm not even going to tell you all the things <laughs> the social workers could find if they came to my house yeah but I just don't know anybody who is going to have this perfect home and who's going to be doing everything exactly right it's ex- you, you never want to come to the attention of DCFS well and it seems like then too this only exacerbates the problem with profiling or focusing on this demographic of women that you mentioned. 100%. I mean, I am not the person who originated this thought, but there is just this suspicion of mothers of color that white mothers do not come under. They just are not scrutinized in the same way. Mm-hmm. And um, so what, and obviously um, we know you can't really offer legal advice, but to um, pregnant women or soon-to-be mothers out there considering using cannabis, um, especially, you know, I was talking to our producer Hannah earlier about how, you know, there seems to be more acceptance over having an occasional drink later on in your pregnancy or, you know, other other indulgences that doctors will tell you not to do. But when it comes to cannabis, it's still kind of in its whole other level. So I'm curious, you know, how people reconcile that and what you would recommend, at least from a legal perspective, a woman considering any of these things. I mean, obviously, I cannot give any legal advice, but I would say, frankly, not to use within 30 days of delivery. Mm -hmm. I just think the risks are too high. I really do. Just in terms of getting... um, being scrutinized. Now, if you are in a demographic uh, that's just not going to be scrutinized, you have a private doctor and you feel comfortable that um, no one's going to be testing you or your baby, then you're able to do certain things that others are not. But I think I think that ultimately, with the law being what it is and with what I see happening, you shouldn't be using any substances within 30 days of delivery. I mean, I, I think that's the safest advice I can give anybody. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I I have, you know, I've talked to friends of mine before who did use cannabis occasionally during their pregnancy and then did stop. I think most of them stopped um, about two months before for this exact reason because they were worried either – the baby would come early or it would stay in their system longer and they didn't know what would happen at the hospital or if they would get tested. There are just too many questions and too many what ifs and like we were talking about it just depends too much on who's the nurse and who's the doctor and who is the hospital social worker that day Mm -hmm. and it's just a lot of unknowns and it's a very scary thing. 
All right, that's it for this week's episode of Green and Gold. Be sure to tune in next week for part two of the Pregnancy in Pot series. We're talking to Dr. Mishka Turplin about what science says about cannabis use during pregnancy and its effects on the fetus. With that in mind, if you want to weigh in on the topic or are pregnant and have a story of your own, please reach out to me on Twitter at EPFox or Instagram at Penny underscore Gadget. I am happy to withhold your name or any other information you want for privacy. If it makes you feel any more comfortable doing so, I myself am seven months pregnant and have grappled with this issue a lot. There's a long list of things you're told not to do when pregnant, and then somehow we have to decide which rules are okay to break. I'd love to hear where you all landed on this. Thank you for listening. Remember, this has been a Table Cakes podcast. Table Cakes Productions is a women-owned LA-based podcast network, and you can check out our other shows at tablecakes.com. You can also support Green and Gold by visiting patreon.com backslash tablecakes. All right, catch you later, buds.